happy Thursday or happy discovery of Witches Day, which is what day it is for us here at the Desire Made Real podcast. Before we get into episode two, we wanted to make a quick announcement that we now have some dedicated ways for you to get in touch with us and engage with us online. We have a brand new Twitter account just for the show, so you can reach us at twitter.com slash real. You can also send us an email to desiremaderealpod at gmail.com. And we also have a shiny new Tumblr account, so that would be desiremaderealpodcast.tumblr.com. Please come chat with us. Let us know all of the wonderful thoughts that you have about Matthew and Diana, or even your not-so-wonderful thoughts. And make sure that you vote in our poll that we are going to put up for every single episode. And we hope you enjoy episode two. Welcome to Desire Made Real, a discovery of witches podcast where we recap every episode of the television show spoiler free. I'm one of your hosts, Mandy Kay, and when I'm not talking about Matthew and Diana, I'm talking about movies on my other podcast, Pop Culturally Deprived. And I'm Caitlin, and when I'm not talking about A Discovery of Witches, I'm podcasting about Lord of the Rings on So You Want to Read Tolkien. Each week, we'll recap the episode spoiler-free, and we'll also be joined by our friend Dr. Anya, an evolutionary biologist, who will talk about the science of the show. We'll also include a segment at the end to discuss the books, how well the adaptation works, and we will likely dive into some spoilers here. But don't worry, we'll give you plenty of warning before we get there. Episode 2 this week was once again directed by Juan Carlos Medina and written by Kate Brooke, the same team that did episode 1. Am I the only one who thinks it's weird that they didn't give the episode's titles? I hate it. It's really annoying, right? Like, it probably wouldn't bother me at all if we weren't podcasting. But it's hard to just be like episode one, episode two. I don't know. Right. All right. Well, this is the episode where there's a lot, and I mean a lot, of exposition about Diana, the book, and Matthew. Or, as IMDb says, as Matthew fights to control his cravings, he leaves Diana to face her enemies alone. And those include powerful witch Peter Knox. Dun, dun, dun. That makes it sound so much more dramatic than it is. Yeah. This is the exposition episode of the season yeah. without fail. Yeah, it is my least favorite of the season. Not that I don't like it because I like the whole season, but it is my least favorite. Because nothing really happens in this episode. Yeah. Like, I like the last 10 minutes. Right. When things do start moving forward. Yeah. There were a lot of really fast cuts in this one. I think my notes were like, Oh, we're back to Diana. Oh, it's Matthew and Hamish. Oh, no, it's Diana. Now it's Matthew and Hamish. Oh, it's Diana. You know, just back and forth and back and forth. But like, I don't know. It it felt a lot like they were trying to make all of the characters audience surrogates a little bit. I can see that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. All right. So the episode opens with an attractive lady vampire uh, hunting a Frenchman who has a familiar sounding name. And I like, I do like that we open once again with a scene that is not in Diana's point of view, because it does mm-hmm. expand the story out again, even more so than the first episode. And we are very obviously not in Oxford in this scene. Right. We're in Venice, Venice I yeah. think. 
Yeah. And I guess we don't technically know who the lady is until later on in the episode, but I guess we can just call her Juliet. Stalking a man named Matthew. While White Rabbit by Haley Reinhardt, a cover of the original from Jefferson Airplane plays, which is a song that I enjoy. And I thought a very good choice for this scene gave it a good feel because it sounds different than all the other music that they've chosen for the series, Mm -hmm. which is great because I think this is like all the other songs with lyrics are scenes with Diana and or Matthew. So this is the only one without them. Yeah, it worked really well, though, I think, because the... The lyrics are kind of all about reality not being real. You know, it's based on Alice in Wonderland and well, it's based you know, on drinking the drink or LSD. Taking... Well, yes, <laughs> but the metaphor, yes, <laughs> the metaphor is from Alice in Wonderland, and that's kind of what we see because Juliet is chasing this man who is basically a surrogate of Matthew, and so for her, she doesn't see this man; she sees Matthew. Yeah. And so I thought it it was a really nice pairing for what we were seeing on the screen. Yeah. I actually just thought of another song that has nothing to do with Matthew or Diana, so I was wrong earlier. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. And then we see a vampire who feeds on humans and is kind of scary, which we haven't really seen yet. We've seen vampires drinking wine and not being yeah. scary. Yeah, we and we saw Marcus try to sire James, so he bit him then. Right. But this is the first kind of aggressive act that we've seen from a vampire. Yeah. Which was actually pretty terrifying. I had a question about the scene for you. Mm-hmm. Do we usually get a cold open before we get to the title cards? I feel like yes. And by usually, I mean we've only had one episode so far <laughs> before this one. In the premiere, I know the first thing that we saw was... It begins with right absence and desire. It begins with blood and fear. And then we went into the actual show. But this one, we got this scene before we even got the it begins mm-hmm. words. And that just struck me because it's so different from how the premiere was. And I couldn't remember, even though I know we've seen all of the episodes in the season, I couldn't remember if they do that every time or if it always begins with it begins. I also don't remember. We can... Check back in on this on episode three. Yeah, because I would be interested to know if this was a specific choice of showing us a character who we don't know anything about. We've never seen her before. We don't know her name. And we see this very aggressive act. And all we know is that it's somehow tied to Matthew. Like, Did they choose to do this differently for a reason? Or is this just sometimes they do it and sometimes they don't? Yeah, if they did do it, purposefully it works like removing it from the diana story Mm -hmm. i think so and then we are given our proper introduction to the episode that we will see in every episode moving forward which is matthew's voiceover monologue this one is significantly shorter than the one we got in the premiere and i think this is the same version version that we'll keep for the rest of the season until it stops yeah yes until it stops i like his voiceover like, usually I don't like voiceovers. Like, I think of Buffy, of Giles doing the in every generation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only one. And I think they got annoyed with that one, too, because it just kind of stopped Yeah, I, randomly. <laughs> I think with this one, on episode three, I was like, really? Again? But then by episode six, I was like, okay, that's just the way things are. And then it was gone uh-huh. for episode seven and eight. And I was like, well, right. I just got used to it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I like it, though, but that might just be because I really like Matthew's voice, too. It is a very nice voice. But it's also a really good voiceover. Like, it's well-written. Mm-hmm. And it just serves as a reminder of what we're actually doing here in the story. And then we're driving along the roads of, quote-unquote, Scotland. Uh, but they're in Wales. We don't need to know they're in Wales. We just need to live in the illusion that this is Scotland. I guess. And we pull up to a house and we meet our first demon, I think. Right? Yeah. At least the first demon that we're aware of. Yeah. Uh, Hamish. Hamish! Yay! And we are sort of immediately thrown into their friendship, which I like, because they have that, you know, you can kind of be mean to each other, but it doesn't really matter quality going yeah. on. Right. And it sort of immediately shows that they've known each other for a while and that they're comfortable with each other. Even though one is a vampire and one is a demon. And I guess here's where we should talk about what exactly are the demons in this world. Because there is a question that plagues everybody who reads these books. Is there an answer? <laughs> yeah, I was looking through several um, like Reddit threads today on Discovery of Witches. Mm -hmm. And without fail, the question that I saw come up more than once or actually more than anything else, was what are demons? Are they really just humans that are smart? Or why are they not special like witches and vampires are? Nobody could really come up with a good answer. So I'm curious what your response to this question is. So the All Souls wiki or whatever says that demons display a high creative capacity and are known for their extremely free-form thoughts and ideas, but live regular human lifespans. Which really gives us nothing. Now, I read somewhere, I feel like maybe it was an interview with Deborah Harkness or something, that she chose to spell demon the way she does it in the book, um, because it's more like the Greek spelling of demon, which mm -hmm. apparently means genius. Which I kind of tried to look up and confirm, and then I just got all this other stuff and blah, 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 blah. But basically, I got to this thing from the Encyclopedia Britannica that talked about the Greek term demon, that it was sort of related to the term for god, or a god, but was more about having like a split second of supernatural intervention mm -hmm. in your life, I guess. And I thought that that was kind of interesting. Because the demons are almost human, but then you could say that they have these, like, moments of clarity, you know, in their thinking where they are particularly creative or particularly smart or something like that. Right. So I think that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it. They have kind of a supernatural way of thinking. I, I read today that somebody described it as preternatural, not supernatural. And I had to look up the difference between those two words because I don't actually know. Right. <laughs> I think to me, they're just kind of always the same, like interchangeable, but they're not. Um, preternatural describes something that is beyond what is expected or normal. And supernatural is something that must be caused by a force beyond the natural. Okay. And, and so preternatural would be someone who is like a mortal man gifted with absolute inexplicable talent. Like... Mozart or Beethoven or somebody who's just really, really, really smart, mm -hmm. you know, like child prodigies and, and geniuses and things like that. 
And I think that's what Deborah Harkness might have been going for. Yeah. And in, in how she was writing it, because it does seem as if throughout the course of the books, all of the demons that were introduced to are people that generally speaking are people that we've heard of in history. Yes. That might be, spo- is that too spoilery? No, because Matthew talks about people that he's met in his past. Perfect. But I do still understand why people would be confused about this because there is such a significant difference between witches and vampires and then demons. Yeah. And there's such a significant difference between like humans and witches and vampires, but then demons are regularly born to humans. Right. So what is a demon? Who knows? Basically. Absolutely. It is a little bit confusing, but... But we know they're not human, so... They are a creature. Matthew and Hamish don't really go into Hamish all that much in their scenes in this episode. It is mostly about Matthew, which Mm -hmm. is fair. And I do think that they kind of, like some of the friendly ribbing that the two have going on here is a little bit playing on gay stereotypes, which Hamish is gay, even though it's never stated in the show. And I didn't really like that. Like, there's the whole thing with the kind of funny-looking new pants and then the making fun of how he redecorated. Because apparently he made his house look like a wedding cake? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, But whatever, it's still very clear that they're friends. Yeah, I love that Hamish calls him Matt. I'm pretty sure he's the only person in the whole show who does. Yeah, I think so, too. Like, it's weird because... Like, you know, I, I do a podcast with a Matthew, and I would never, ever call Matthew Matt. And so hearing people call a Matthew Matt is just, like, cringeworthy for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that Hamish and Matthew are so close that, that they have that relationship where, you know, Hamish can just get away with it. Yeah. I like how Hamish does it, but thinking about anybody else doing it, I'm like, no, that would not sound right at all. Yeah. Can you imagine Miriam calling him Matt? <laughs> can you imagine Matthew if Miriam did call him Matt? <laughs> No. And then and then we get Matthew saying that he is there to get away from a witch because he is craving her, which I think is the first time we've heard about this. I don't think we like we saw that he wanted to. Yeah, it's definitely the first time that we've heard the word craving yeah. or crave. And I guess that's a good way to show that something different than general vampire hungriness or whatever is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we cut to Diana. And she's dreaming about spiders. Oh my gosh, it's awful. It's so awful. Not only are there spiders like walking around in her room, but then she's covered in spider webs. And there's that big spider under the covers. It's not okay. Yeah, you don't go into a show like this expecting to get a jump scare. It's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't wasn't that bad, but I don't like spiders. I don't like spiders either, so it was that bad the first time. Oh. I was expecting it the, the other times, but... And then Diana gets up and wraps up the burn on her hand and, like, sort of looks at it like it's hurting her. But in the last episode, she was rowing with the burn on her hand. I didn't even think about that. You're absolutely right. I just don't think... I mean, unless she's wrapping it up to hide it, but then the gauze just brings more attention. Well, she didn't even do that good of job of wrapping it because the end of the gauze was just kind of flapping around. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe just nobody was paying attention. I mean, not to spoil too many things, but the editing on this show in future episodes does leave some things to be desired. 
<laughs> That's okay. It's still wonderful. Yeah, no, it's still great. I, I do love it. And she picks up Matthew's business card and stares longingly at it. Really? Does she stare longingly at it? I mean, she looks at it for, like, the camera zooms in. Yeah. We do get a nice look at, at the business card. And then we find, or Diana finds, that Matthew returned her jacket by stuffing it in her mailbox. And she it was neatly folded. Oh, that's that's true. It was. Sorry. Not to imply <laughs> that Matthew Claremont would ever do anything messily. Sorry. It is folded nicely like a good nerd would. Yes. Yes, it is. And I don't, this always weird, this scene, I don't know, I always thought it was weird because she looks at it and she kind of smiles. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why are you, you returned your stolen property. Right, the property that he stole while he was trying very, very hard not to, like, chase her down. Yeah. Like, the last time she saw him, he was telling her, you need to get away from me and do it slowly and don't run because I am going to lose my shit. And now she's very charmed. I don't know. It's just a weird scene. But it is a little bit of nice continuity, though, because he had the jacket and then we see it get returned. True. Although I was, once again, uh, through these scenes with Diana, reminded at how much the show loves the color blue. Mm-hmm. Her sheets were blue. The clothes she was sleeping in were blue. I swear they edit her eyes to be even bluer than they are. The jacket that got returned to her was blue. Her walls are blue. Everything that surrounds Diana is blue. And then later, we will also see that Matthew's walls are blue. I didn't even notice Matthew's walls. There's just blue everywhere. When I think about Matthew's room, all I think about is the wall of books at the back. Yes. Wall of books. But we will get to the wall of yes. books. Because after blue walls, we're in, uh, we're back to Venice with another attractive vampire man who wants to look at a dead body. Uh, this is Domenico, and he is investigating the vampire murder that happened earlier. He is shown the dead body. He sniffs it. Very obviously, even though I feel like vampires smell like you don't need to lean close. Right. But I guess they wanted to make it obvious. Then it it is shown very clearly that he knows as soon as the, the dead person's name is Matthew, he knows exactly what's going on and he knows who Matthew is. So it's just an interesting bit to see that Matthew is a known vampire. You know, he's not just a random dude. Right. Which I think is... This is the first sort of hints we get towards that, that he is an important vampire. Yeah, this is the first time we've seen somebody who knows about Matthew who's not standing in a room with Matthew. Yeah. And then we move into a series of scenes that are intercut between Matthew and Diana mm-hmm. very, very quickly. So we see Matthew start his hunt. He's gone to the lodge with Hamish specifically so that he can go hunting to kind of quench some of his blood thirst that he is feeling since he is now craving Diana. Mm -hmm. And obviously he's not going to bite Diana. So we're going to see him bite a deer because we don't actually see him bite it, but you know, it is what it is. And then we see Diana in the library at the same time being approached by Peter Knox. So there's kind of a lot happening while a lot is not happening. Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense? Yes, it does. That is a good sum up for this. So I think I think they tried way too hard to draw a parallel between Matthew hunting the deer and Peter hunting Diana. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I think that's exactly what they were trying to do because that that is what is happening here. And in both instances, you know, Matthew overpowers the deer. The deer absolutely submits to him by kneeling, which I don't actually think would happen in real life. But, you know, the deer recognizes defeat, kneels, Matthew emerges victorious. And while we are led to believe that Diana is not going to submit to Peter because she is trying to stand up to him, she's like, no, I'm not going to get the book for you. I don't want the same things that you want. As soon as he mentions her mother, all of her walls go down and she instantly lights up and they go for tea. Yeah. So I guess he knew the exact thing to say to get her. And yeah. then he, she, Diana, immediately starts trying to pick Peter's brain about her parents. And I can't tell if it's because I'd read the books or if it's almost immediately. I guess we saw Peter Knox in the first episode, too, and he didn't seem all that great. It's immediately clear that he knew a lot and cared a lot about her mother and is just kind of very dismissive of Diana's father. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of like you can tell as their conversation goes on that even before the genocide comes up, Diana does get a little bit more and more guarded. Yeah, well, I think it, it's pretty clear that Knox had a thing for her mom. Yeah. It's not explicitly stated at this point, but definitely he's, I mean, he's shady anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think Diana was trying to be kind and like open and she was all smiles and so eager to learn more about her parents. And Peter just was not willing to share. He was not opening up. And I think that's some of what set Diana back on edge. Yeah. And then we get to genocide <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah, as soon as he starts uh, talking about the book, she, like, starts giving one-word answers and, mm -hmm. like, stopping giving out any information. And then suddenly he's like, well, we could destroy vampires. And Anna's like, well, or not. Right. That seems like the better, the better option. Yeah. I think it's interesting at this point, though, that Diana still seems to not understand why the book is important. At this point, she knows Matthew wants it, and now that she knows Peter wants it, and she sees that Peter wants it for some nefarious reason, but she's still not tying these things to herself and her magic. She's not understanding that they believe that she has the book, and so she just keeps telling them, I don't have it. It's in the library. Where else would a book be? Yeah. And she also, like, doesn't seem to quite understand that nobody else can get it. Right. I think it was in this scene that Peter, this is tough because I was just rereading the beginning of the book. Yeah. So this is a little bit tough. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was in the scene where Peter said, I filled out a cost slip for it this morning and it wasn't there. The library says it's been missing yeah. for quite some time. I think, yeah, he does say that here. And then Diana's like, well, I saw it last week. Right. So she's still not quite understanding that something special happened. When she called up this book. Or she's willfully choosing not to. Oh, no, that's an interesting possibility that I hadn't considered. Because, like, a big thing happened when she pulled that book. Right. It burned her freaking hand yeah. and put words on her skin. So <laughs> normal books don't do that. Yeah, so I can't help but think she must have known something had gone wrong or, or that something's happened and she's just sort of trying to pretend that it has nothing to do with her. Right. Absolutely. And of course, this is where we see more threads of just absolute creature bigotry. 
Um, This started last episode and it just continues here where we'll see more later as, as Matthew and Hamish are talking about the book too. But Peter Knox just... I, he's awful. He's an awful human being. He's not human. He's an awful witch being. <laughs> human witch being. I don't know how you say that. We don't like Knox. We do not like Knox at all. And then we cut back to Hamish and Matthew. Which is a nice, nice breath of fresh air. They're so cute. Any scene with Hamish is a nice breath of fresh air, yeah. I think. Agreed. I don't think he's going to be in season two, and I'm sad. Oh. But um, I didn't think about that. This is sort of where now that Matthew's eaten, he calms down a bit and starts explaining the problem to Hamish. Yes. And finally, we learn more about exactly why the book is important. You know, I think in episode one, we just kind of found out that Matthew thinks it has to do with the creatures and maybe can tell him why creatures are dying out. But this is where we finally get some information about what the book is. Uh, we also learn that demon suicides are on the rise, just like vampire sirens are failing and witches are losing their powers. And so clearly this is a thread that we're going to see throughout all of these episodes, that there is definitely a problem. And this book is believed to have the answers. Yes. And then we quickly swap back to Venice and we get some interesting dynamics between these three vampires that we meet. So there's Juliet and Medico and Gerbert, who Juliet refers to as father, which when we were talking about the opening monologue earlier, I realized this is not the first time we've heard a vampire call someone father, but it's the first, like other than the opening monologue, whatever. It is right. the first time we've seen a vampire refer definitely to another vampire as father. So it, sort of expands that lore that we're getting in this world, that there are all the are these vampire families mm-hmm. that seem to stick together. Did they explain, and I just missed it, why Domenico is coming to tell on Juliet here? Is it just because a vampire killed a human? And somehow that's frowned upon, but I don't actually think that's frowned upon in, in this world. So I guess I put like some of my book knowledge into this in that the blatant vampire killings, because I think Gerbert uses that term when he's punishing uh, Juliet later on, okay, are not good because it alerts humans to their existence. Right. So I don't know. It, it's kind of a weird scene uh, with the dynamics, especially like Domenico walks in and kisses Gerbert's hand, which like I just, I, Why? Well, they're clearly setting Gerbert up to be some sort of leader, but we don't yet understand what that looks like when it comes to some sort of vampire hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Because all we've seen so far is like Matthew and Marcus, Matthew sired Marcus, and now we've got Juliet calling Gerbert father. But other than that, we don't know. I mean, Gerbert certainly has the disposition of someone who is full of arrogant power. Yeah. We just don't really understand what that means yet I think and honestly like I I hate to draw this comparison but I know that that we've talked about Twilight before when it comes to Discovery of Witches they kind of set Gerber up to be like Arrow in the Volturi in Twilight like this don't they I mean he's just very 
there's a lot of similarities in this episode, honestly, with the deer okay. and this whole situation in, you know, Europe. I mean, this is in Venice, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So, no, I can see exactly where you're coming from. Okay. I thought it was just me. And as I mentioned before, like, this book came out in the depths of Twilight Time. Yeah. So I think similarities are impossible not to point out and impossible not to have happened. Right. I think the show does it a little more blatantly than the book did, specifically with Jer Bear at this point. In some ways, definitely, yeah. Yeah, because in, in the book, we haven't even met these people yet. Well, that is also true. And then we move back to Jillian. There are a lot of cuts in this episode. Maybe they were trying to hide that nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just so much back and forth and back and forth. It's Exposition City. Yep. And they're... I like that they gave us this exposition with tea and cookies. My Biscuits. Biscuits, yeah. <laughs> Although they weren't eating my favorites, but it's fine. And I don't know if it's just the writing, but Jillian is very obviously not a good liar. And that just like whooshes over Diana's head here. Yeah. I, I was picking up on that. Jillian was very obviously nervous. Yeah. The way that she was like dunking her, her cookies and like just cramming them in her mouth. And she's like, word gets around. You know, like, I didn't tell anybody about your book. Like, really, Jillian? I think she yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But I didn't tell anybody and then shoves a cookie in her mouth. Yeah. You know, it, it's very, uh, it's almost toddler-esque. Yeah. I don't know. Jillian, the character of Jillian just bothers me a lot. Like, I get really irritated when I see her on screen. Mm-hmm. Which means the actress is doing a really, really good job because that actress, I don't get irritated when I see her. Like in Sherlock, I love her. I adore her. She's so cute and wonderful. Yeah. And in this, every time I see her face, I just want to punch her. Yeah, she says the word harm in this scene and I cannot stand the way she says it. I still don't get what you're so anxious about. How could taking out a book for a senior witch do any harm? I don't know yeah. why, but I want to hurt her every time I hear it. Yeah, she's definitely a piece of work but i like it i think it's good for the story and i love that she has such an expanded role in the show than she did in the book yeah although because i, I was also rereading the book recently and she is so different in the book i'd forgotten how how different like i know that they had changed her but i'd forgotten how much they had changed her she is not a nice person in the book so maybe some of the writings that they changed the character so much and they weren't quite sure what to do with it. So, like, that's why some of it's kind of awkward. Yeah. I don't know. But um, Jillian also refers to Knox as a senior witch here. I don't know if we've heard anybody other than Knox and Satu mention the congregation yet. No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. But we do get the idea here that other witches are aware that there is a hierarchy of some kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, so then we're back with Hamish and Matthew, another cut, and we're learning that everybody has a legend about this book, and everyone wants it, and everyone blames everyone else that they don't have it, and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So we get more about the complicated interspecies book-wanting dynamic. Except this is also where we learn that demons are considered less than the witches and the vampires because they're not even really considered as owners of the book like the witches think the witches own it the vampires think the vampires own it and the demons basically even they don't think they own it they just think that they're part of the story somehow 
Yeah. Yeah, poor demons. They're so poorly defined, they don't even know what they are. Yeah, that's pretty terrible. And then we have a quick cut back to Marcus and Miriam in the lab. Which is great. I love every minute of these two together. Yeah, any scene with Marcus and Miriam is going to be pretty fantastic. And in this scene, it's a very quick scene. Um, and again, it's it's all exposition. This is where we learn that James's blood was normal. And so the reason that he wasn't sired, that the siring failed, had to have come for Marcus, the vampire. Which we don't know why. We don't actually know what that means. It's just another little tidbit. And then we're Diana going for a run. Wearing gray for the first time. It's not blue. It is not blue. A- but she still has her necklace on, which has blue. She does. I, As an aside about the necklace, I believe a friend of Teresa Palmer's made that necklace. Nice. And Teresa was just like, I think Diana will wear this. And the showrunners were like, sounds good. Okay. That sounds fantastic. And I, I will mention, I'm pretty sure that other than blue, gray is the only other color we see her in. So... Well, and white, because her shirt is usually white. Oh, that's fair. But then she has the blue jacket and the, the gray jacket. Yeah. So, But it is weird, because we see her in so much blue that it's weird to see her not wearing blue. Yeah. But it is also a strange scene, because this is the scene where Satu comes to confront her. And she does this freaky eye magic thing. It, it really doesn't give us any information about Diana or Satu here. It's a very strange exchange, and it, it looks really freaky when her eyes roll back in her head. Um, but Satu does give us some sort of information when she tells Diana, someone did something to you, or you did it to yourself. And we don't know what that means. Diana clearly doesn't know what that means. It's just kind of an information dump that the show is giving us. And then we move on. Well, and then Satu says something like, do you fear persecution? And Diana says, I haven't until now. Which is the exact opposite of why she doesn't yeah. use her magic. Like, that is, like, yeah. she fears persecution. That's why she doesn't use her magic. Right. Or at least because her parents died. So she's afraid that's going to happen to her. Uh, then we cut to a quick phone call that Diana has with M, where M basically just confirms all the weird feelings that we've gotten about Knox or that Diana's gotten about Knox and that, yeah, he was kind of obsessed with her mom, but her dad never trusted him. And then maybe Peter Knox got involved in some dark magic yeah and i think M says that by the end her mom didn't trust him either yeah which i think is probably the thing that's most impactful to diana yeah and then we cut back to gerber and juliet so many cuts yeah and in this one um again this scene is a lot of exposition without being exposition mm-hmm. so like we learned that vampires can see memories when they bite people we learned that Juliet and Matthew have an intriguing naked past mm-hmm. um, together. We learned that Jaber is a bit of a shit, but we're going to, at least I want to talk more about him. I think it's next episode. Okay. Episode three or four. Because Jaber is based on a real historical person, but I want to get into that when we see something else. Okay. And we get a mention of Baldwin and sort of an idea that vampires have something they have to answer to yes and that's interesting too and then at the very end when Chabert is throwing Juliet into a cage or whatever it is a cell I guess 
she sort of screams out that you taught me to crave Matthew. So we get this feeling that Matthew is very important to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. So we learn a lot very quickly. With actually very few words, too. Most of that scene was just visual. Yeah. It was a good scene. It was a very good scene. And then we get, you know, the information about Baldwin and Juliet yelling about craving Matthew at the very end. But as much as I dislike exposition, giving us exposition and visual information is so much more appealing to me. Yeah. Yeah, this works better than a lot of the talkie talk scenes. Yeah. And I there's a lot of talkie talk scenes. And I did just realize that she specifically uses the word crave, which Matthew used earlier about Diana. Yes. I'd never put that together before. Yeah, it, I think craving is important. It, it means something specific that we just don't understand yet. Mm-hmm. And then we make another cut. Back to Hamish and Matthew. Hamish. <laughs> Hamish. Back to Hamish and Matthew. Playing chess. Everybody's favorite pastime with vampires. Yeah. And there's more to chess than just protecting your queen. Yeah. I, I love Matthew Good's acting in that because mm-hmm. you can see the realization come over his face. Yeah. When Hamish says that and you know that he's like, oh, shit, I've left her alone. Everybody else wants the book. and He's just out of there. Yep. It was just a really good scene. It's short to the point. Very good actors. Yes. And then we see Diana at a party because we make another cut. (laughs) I like how you've labeled this in our notes. The Dean's awful party. That's what Diana calls it. That's honestly, I'm assuming that's because all academic parties are going to be awful. <laughs> but of course, your note has to do with the awfulness of the special effects that we see in the scene. Uh, the glass breaking is terrible. And like, it is Diana's weird, deep, leave me alone or get out of my head. That was bad, too. The whole thing was bad. Yeah, I think. I think the glass is intended to be bad because it's the glass itself doesn't actually break. The glass is still there at the end of the scene. I thought that was just like another, like they left it there. But okay, so you think it's fake glass? Like that she's put an image of glass breaking? Yeah, I was thinking that it was some sort of an illusion. Illusion is the word I was looking for, yeah. Um, And, and I mean, maybe it's just bad editing, bad special effects, but... If you think of it as an illusion, then you think that it's really brilliant what they did. <laughs> so I'm going with that. Okay. Okay. This is also the first scene where we see actual, like, real witch power apart from Satu's fire. Right. And in, in the first episode, this is specifically the first time we see Diana do, like, serious business magic. <laughs> serious business magic. Yes. Serious business magic. I like that. Yeah, and it I'm kind of sad that it is so poorly done in the special effects department. Yeah, I think the glass was really the worst part. And the gold flashies and... Ah, uh, the glowiness was okay with me. I wasn't a fan. Okay, that's fair. But I mean, that's we do see that fair. Peter Knox is a jerk again, just in case we had some doubt. Yeah, it's, it's rude to enter someone's mind without permission. Yes. Absolutely rude. Very. And... Then we, then we cut again. Yes, we do. To Jillian and Peter talking. And he calls that, he calls what Diana did an elemental spell. What, what element would you assign to that? To like... Air, maybe? I guess. If she actually broke the glass. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. 
But everybody's surprised that Diana has magic. Then Diana shows up and is like, oh no, Jillian, you betrayed me. And then that's like driven into our heads with flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. Like we're on episode two. We Yeah, we just saw all of these scenes. We don't need them again. Yeah. But it is, from the audience's perspective, it's absolutely unnecessary, but I totally get why why they're showing us how Diana's obliviousness is finally coming to something, because she is finally recognizing all of these things. I guess. But I do completely understand why it's frustrating. This is also the scene where Peter convinces Jillian that Diana has been using her magic to get ahead at work. Right. I forgot. Which just makes me want to punch him even more than normal yeah i mean i guess it's kind of smart of him like or what's the word devious that's a good one that is a good word devious yes because it it immediately puts jillian off right and puts her more under his control but you know if peter were smarter he would keep jillian friends with diana so that he would have access and instead, he just ruined it. Yeah, I guess. He absolutely ruined it. There's no way Diana is ever going to trust Jillian again. I don't know if that would be what Peter wants, though, to spy on Diana. I think he just wants to control as many powerful people as possible. Oh, well, that is fair. And given what we've seen of him so far, particularly with Satu. Yeah. Absolutely a personality trait of his. Uh, but then the flashbacks, you know, to five minutes ago. Diana remembers Matthew. I don't know. Anyway, she goes to find Matthew, where his rooms are at his college, and he is not in his rooms. But as she turns around to the stairs, there he is at the bottom, the one time she will be taller than him. (laughs) And I thought this was a good scene, too, because you can see the immediate relief on her face and the immediate, like, oh, shit. I wasn't expecting to see her right the second I got back on Matthew's face. Right. And then we, again, we cut, but it's still just like Matthew and Diana. But I guess we just. Right. But but we didn't have to see like the mundanity of him walking up the stairs, unlocking the door, inviting her in. We just cut to them being in his rooms. This is true. But just in an episode with a lot of cuts, it, it stands out to me again, I guess. Yeah. So many cuts. I mean, this is averaging, like, we have noted 23 cuts, and I'm pretty sure there were more than that. So that's at least one cut every two minutes. Yeah, wow. That's a lot. So then in Matthew's room, at first, Matthew looks like he's trying to control himself. And Diana's just like, I don't know what I'm doing here. You're a vampire. And then, and then I guess everybody just sort of makes a decision, you know, like, Diana mm-hmm. calms down a bit, and Matthew is like, no, I can do this. Here, look at my book where Darwin wrote me a letter. And Diana immediately is in love with Matthew. Wouldn't you be? Well, I personally, well, no, okay. Ma- I mean, it wouldn't be the Darwin thing that got me. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure. But it would be that wonderful wall of books. Yeah. But I am pretty sure Diana's like, you knew Darwin? And then it's like, I want every conversation I ever have to be with you. Tell me about every historical person you know, please. Yeah. I think opening that book and and seeing that he knew Darwin and him being that open with her about that particular thing in his life, 
is what made all of the walls crumble for Diana. Like that is the moment where moving forward, they just are. I mean, at this point, it's just they're friends. Yeah. She trusts him. She doesn't trust anybody else. And that's really nice. Yeah. And then they continue to like history flirt. Well, she like asks how old he is and who else he knows and what else he's seen. And he just sort of smiles coyly and answers in incomplete sentences. How old are you? I'm older than I look. 300 years. Mm. 500 years. Did you know Machiavelli? (laughs) Survived the fall of Carthage. Which fall of Carthage? And, like, you can see in her face how intrigued she is. Yes. And then he sort of starts to explain about his theories about evolution and how that relates to creatures. And then has that very serious line of, will you let me show you my laboratory? (laughs) Which is great. And then we cut to the lab. And we get Miriam, Marcus, Diana, and Matthew all in a room together. And it's really good. It is really good. I like it. And I love Miriam when he, her, like, he's been helping me while you've been away. And you can tell that she does not mean helping. Exactly. She means get him out of here. Right. She's just as annoyed at, at Marcus as she is with Matthew bringing Diana in when she says something like, if you didn't bring your friend by to give blood, why is she here? Yeah. Like, Miriam is just all business. Yeah. All the time. Uh, Miriam is such an interesting character, but we don't know these things about her yet, so it's fine. And then Matthew describes Diana how creatures are dying out, and while showing Diana how it affects witches with mitochondrial DNA, how about we take things over to Dr. Anya to learn more. So this week, I wanted to talk about the voiceover which was on the previous episode, um, but I we didn't quite have as much context to understand it, and there was so much to talk about, about alchemy. So all of the episodes start with Matthew saying, Once the world was full of wonders, but it belongs to humans now. We creatures have all but disappeared. And then he says, demons, vampires, and witches. But if you ignore that part, to me, this really reads like a description of what's happening right now on planet Earth, um, which scientists call the sixth mass extinction. Yeah, especially considering that uh, this episode also gives a shout out to climate change. I just like, it's hard for me not to read it in that double meaning that like this book is about the extinction of mythical human-like creatures but we're actually like in the middle of a extinction crisis of just ordinary animals and plants and fungi on earth um so i was wondering if that had like crossed your mind at all or if you sort of were just considering it in the context of the show it honestly hadn't crossed my mind at all but it strikes me as the type of thing that like a a work of fiction like this one would do subtly to make it resonate with people that maybe it doesn't cross your mind while you're watching it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Because now that you point it out, I'm like, oh, yeah. But it hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about it before. So I'm curious what you guys thought of 
you know, the first lab scene where we're getting to see Miriam really kind of like do some sciencey stuff. So I have blocked out high school and college science because I was an English mm-hmm. major. I like to read. I don't like to do stuff in my head. Numbers are terrible. So my knowledge of labs really comes from the shiny, sparkly, high-tech labs you mm-hmm. see on television. And so this one fit right in <laughs> for me. It was very pretty. <laughs> um, yeah, like overall, I, I like the set design and that, you know, I'm totally fine with making science look slightly more attractive and glamorous um, than it would be in real life. The one part that did make me laugh, though, was when she's looking at just, like, blobs of blood sitting in a Petri dish on the microscope. Because, like, blood is fairly opaque, and especially when it's, like, that thick. Like, you wouldn't be able to see anything because the light just wouldn't be able to penetrate. So normally when you look at blood, you put it on a slide and... Um, you put a cover slip on top so it like smooshes the blood down and you get a super thin layer um, and then you can like see the individual cells and the light can actually penetrate through them i think even i need that yeah because <laughs> i remember like... doing that in like middle school and like slides are fairly standard for tv set design they're not like that fancy so i was i was a little bit surprised to see that but you know whatever i also thought it was interesting that she was not wearing any PPE is what we call personal protective equipment um, while working with human blood. If someone came in and saw her doing that, like, she would get, you know, she would be in a lot of trouble. Although you do see them drinking wine in the lab, which is also technically against the rules. But, like, I actually am reluctant to criticize that because I know scientists who eat in their lab environments when they're not supposed to all the time. Like, everybody brings coffee everywhere. So and I guess the vampire version of coffee is wine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I have a question. Do we know, does, does the does the show make it clear? Actually, I don't think the show makes it clear, which is why I'm asking. Is this lab space, is it Matthew's like faculty space sponsored by the university? Or is this his own personal lab oh, space? Oh, that's such an interesting thing. You know, I just assumed it was a university lab. I mean, it seems to be on campus, just based on sort of, like, the way they go in and out between there and mm-hmm. the library. So I'm guessing it's a, a university space. Okay. Would the rules about the PPE change if it's university versus personal? Or is that just kind of standard? I mean, standard? it's pretty standard. I mean, most people don't really have, like, personal or private labs. Like... I mean, it's possible that as a vampire, they don't really care because they're not susceptible to the same human pathogens that we are. But you at least would, you'd think that they'd be like trying to blend in a little bit. Right. Would, I don't know how British uh, universities, colleges work, but I feel like here in North America, somebody like Matthew could give the university a crap ton of money. And be like, this is my lab now. Stay out. So, yes, you could probably self-fund a lab. But if you are in a university, like, physical space, you'd still have to follow all of their rules and regulations or they would get in a lot of trouble. Like, you regular people who have to go through, like, just sexual harassment training don't know how good you have it compared to, like, 
the amount of training that I have to go through every time I start a new job. It's like animal welfare training, radiation safety training, chemical safety training. There's just like so much red tape that even if you are self-funded, like you still have to follow environmental health and safety protocols. You're, you know, you're like, vent hoods and everything is like still hooked up to the same air handling system as everyone else's you still have to like get rid of your biohazardous waste through their systems right yeah okay thank you and of course in this episode we get to find out that matthew was friends with darwin which is super cool and i think it really you know puts the show's questions about the origins of creatures in a evolutionary and historical context um, that is really cool. And so we'll talk a little bit more about Darwin in the next episode, because um, some other stuff comes up then. I do think this is also the first hint that we get about how old Matthew is. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good scene all around. Yeah. The second lab scene, I really loved overall, but it had one cringeworthy moment for me, which was kind of like approaching the kind of things that I really didn't like about the book where you know there are just a lot of times in the book where Matthew would say something that like a real evolutionary biologist would just never say Mm -hmm. and so when he's introducing Diana to the lab he says we're among hundreds of laboratories using genetics to study species origins but in our lab humans aren't the only species we study Matthew should know better that like most evolutionary biology and genetics labs don't study humans. Like, humans are one of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of species on the Earth. And so, like, most labs that study species origins don't study humans. You know, they study, like, beetles or plants or sea lions or whatever. So it just, I think it would have been better if he had said something like, you know, but we study, you know, secret creatures or something. It could be possible that they just couldn't find a good way to say that. Yeah. Like, that's what they were going for, but, like, I can't think of a way to word that better. Yeah, it just strikes me as, like, like a very Hollywood type of mistake to make is that, like, well, clearly all scientists just study humans because humans are the coolest, most important, right. you know, organisms on the planet. But I did love the mitochondrial DNA charts that they put together. But so I thought I would just maybe walk through that a little bit and feel free to skip ahead 30 seconds if this is not your jam. But I thought I could just explain a little bit about sort of like what mitochondria are and what the chart is actually showing. Sounds good. Yeah, I look at these charts and I just see circles and numbers and I have no idea. What but I'm then some of the they actually kind of look identical. Yeah. Some to of the me. circles and numbers disappear, so you know that the second one has less. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) So mitochondria are organelles. Um, They're like, they're actually, they used to be like free living bacteria that our cells uh, sort of like captured, harnessed, and then enslaved, maybe, if you will. Um, We've incorporated them into our, our cellular structure, and we basically use them to process energy right? Uh, On Schoolhouse Rock, they say mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And so because they started out as an independent organism that we've captured and incorporated into our cells, they have their own genome. So the circle that you're seeing there is the mitochondrial genome. 
and um, you can see it's 17,000 base pairs long. So DNA, um, the sequence of the DNA is a sequence of base pairs. So the sequence has almost 17,000 items in it. The human mitochondrial DNA in real life only has 34 genes on it. But according to the labels here, it says protein synthesis 149. So I think maybe they just wanted it to seem like there were more proteins involved or it was like more important than it actually was. They just sort of like made the number bigger. <laughs> 34 okay. didn't seem flashy enough. But yeah, in general, the mitochondria is like, I mean, it's hugely important to the functioning of the cell, right? Like you would not survive without your mitochondria. And there are a ton of very serious genetic diseases that are caused by mutations in the mitochondria. But the mitochondria is really only a small proportion of our genome. So the human genome has about 3 billion base pairs, and this mitochondrial DNA has about 17,000. So it's like a tiny, tiny fraction of the total DNA. And so it seems weird that all of the genes for witchcraft would be only located on the mitochondria. It seems like they would probably be more sprinkled throughout the whole genome. Yeah, I think that's really the question that I had about these charts is for what the show is trying to tell us about what's happening with these creatures does the science, the actual science behind these charts, the mitochondrial DNA, the difference in the markers, does that make sense for what they're telling us? Or is this just shiny science stuff that people who don't have a science background like me will look at and say, oh, pretty complicated. It must be right. So I think what they tried to do is basically use the mitochondrial genome as a stand-in for the larger genome because it's, it's more, manageable. more manageable yeah i mean maybe. like you can show it all in one chart and okay. and actually have mutations labeled on it like the human the full human genome being three billion base pairs you know like you can't even really show it on one chart and you know there's like 23 times two chromosomes that's crazy so i think it was right. a very good visual choice that they chose to just zero in on the the mitochondrial genome uh, the other thing that's really interesting about the mitochondrial genome is that it is inherited matrilineally. So when you're getting ready to pass on your genes to your offspring, your maternal and your paternal chromosomes, they actually like mix together. So what you pass on is a combination of, of what you got from your mom and what you got from your dad. Um, but your mitochondria, since you got all of it from your mom, she got it all from her mom, um, you can really track inheritance in a in a kind of cool and different way and in a slightly more powerful way with mitochondria. And yeah, and so we'll learn more in the next episode a little bit about how they're using mitochondria to track these like original clans um, of witches. Um, but that's actually something that they can do in real human populations is basically like track descendants on a really big scale using mitochondrial DNA and show, you know, that like big regions sort of like all descended from one woman sort of like as one clan group. Okay. And so I wrote down one other quote um, that I think kind of tells us some interesting stuff about the science. So Matthew says, 
Beatrice Good shows far fewer markers common amongst witches, indicating that her ancestors, as the centuries passed, relied less and less upon witchcraft to survive. Now, is this pattern of denying power the reason why witches will eventually become extinct? And so I just wanted to unpack this a little bit because this is kind of invoking a little bit of Darwinian theory and sort of like evolutionary biology, um, but it's not really explaining it that well. So what he's saying is these special traits that are only seen in witches are decreasing in number sort of as time is progressing forward. And so it seems like there's some kind of selection is how Darwin would phrase it against them. So basically that for some reason, the witches that have fewer of these markers are actually surviving better and living to produce more offspring because that's really the only Darwinian way that you could get these markers decreasing in number through time. And so so basically like there's some sort of negative penalty for having these markers. Like if you get caught using your powers and then maybe you get killed by an angry mob or something. I think that's sort of the at least that's what the evolutionary biologist in me is wants to read into it. Of course, there's also a kind of Lamarckian way to interpret that. So I don't know if you remember this from high school biology, but Lamarck was the guy who basically said that the reason why giraffes have such long necks is because they like strain and like stretch really far and they like they stretch their neck and make it a little bit longer and then they pass those on to their offspring. And so I think like if you just take his words at face value, there's a way to interpret that as basically like as you use your powers less, you're less likely to pass them on to your offspring. But I'm going to trust Matthew that he's too smart for that and he isn't actually thinking in that way. So I don't think we learn that much new about the science and the world building in this episode, um, but we do kind of flesh out what we already know a little bit more. Um, So now we know that all of the creatures are dying out, not just vampires. Um, We learned that the demons are having mental health problems that's leading to suicides, and witches are losing their powers gradually over generations. Um, And there's some strong indication that genetics and evolution is involved in the cause, and it's going to feature prominently in the story. Yeah. Is there anything else non-sciencey that you wanted to discuss today? Just that I feel like the Twilight comparisons keep on getting better and better. Like, you know, Matthew's like super old and super rich. And, you know, I think people might be tempted to, yeah, sort of like accuse it a little bit of wish fulfillment. But like, I don't think there's anything wrong with some wish fulfillment as long as it's well done. Thanks for stopping by my lab. uh, And I'll see you guys next week. That was really interesting, and I'm really glad to know that the show is making an effort to be somewhat accurate or or to make sense in the things that they're doing, especially since, you know, as we learned last episode, I look at DNA and say, oh, that's a real word. Yep. So I'm really glad that, that we have Dr. Anya here to help explain things to us. Me too. And then guess what? <laughs> we make another cut. And we've got dinner with Satu uh, and Knox and Jillian. Yeah, this is where we learn that that creepy eye thing that Satu did was Satu trying to look inside Diana. Yeah. 
Which is weird and creepy. I mean, it was creepy when she did it, and it's even creepier when she says, I tried to look inside her. Yeah. Yeah, it's not great. But I, I like this setup of Setu as creepy. Oh, they've done a really good job of setting Setu up as being creepy. Yeah. I mean, the actress who plays her, I cannot remember her name. I should know her name. It starts with an M. Oh, uh, Malin Buska? Yes, her. She pretty fantastic i think just from the beginning the choices that she makes as a character for satu they're completely different from what i expected after reading about satu in the in the book but she's been consistent and it has worked really well for me and i really appreciate it yeah i like a lot of what they did with satu but i can't talk about any of that right now we'll get there yeah and then we are back to matthew and diana with more historical flirting but less like name dropping and more like, yeah, I used to skate on the Thames. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty great. There's so much smiling here. I think this is the most that we've seen either of them smile yeah. yet in the show. And then um, we get Matthew's. Well, as far as I can tell, there are only two emotions that keep the world turning. One is desire and the other is fear. Magic is desire made real. That's what my aunt says. And I think throughout the like entire three-book series, both of these things are very important. With mm-hmm. a lot of what drives Diana is both is her fear and her desire. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's... I'm glad they kept both lines in. Yeah, they would have to, I think, considering how prevalent the opening inscription to the novel is to the show. Mm-hmm. You know, it begins with absence and desire. It begins with blood and fear. Yeah. You know, right up front, we're getting desire and fear. And I love that we get it in episode two, that we do get both of these lines, which, of course, one of which has inspired the name of this podcast. Yes. Magic absolutely is desire made real. I love it. Me too. Um, I don't know how to describe how much. I just really, I think they're both very well written lines and they, the scene is very well acted and it was just very well done all over. And I like how much of, not even just Diana, but almost every character going forward, you can see how much they are driven by fear and desire. Mm-hmm. And it's, I just like having a mission statement right up front. Yeah, absolutely. That is what we're seeing because even even looking at Peter Knox, Obviously, he has the desire for the book. He has the desire to have power. Mm -hmm. And he fears vampires. That's why he wants to have dominion over them. And we haven't really met anybody else yet to be able to apply that kind of same formula to. As of right now, he's our primary antagonist. Yeah. Though there will be more as as the episodes go. And, And I think this will continue to be a theme that we see. Everybody is fueled by desire and fear. And also, I will say this episode kind of started with desire, with uh, Juliet hunting Matthew. So that's interesting, too. And then this isn't so much a cut as a bit of a change in feel. I don't know, Diana abruptly, or not abruptly, but Diana decides to trust Matthew and immediately tells him more about the book than she's told anyone else. Mm -hmm. And like basically everything that she found out about the book, she, she tells Matthew here. And then Matthew suddenly decides to trust himself and gives her a little a little kiss on the wrist. Yeah, I love this moment. They both look absolutely surprised by what just happened. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't 
he's surprised that he did it. She's surprised that he did it. She's surprised that she enjoyed it. Yeah. It's a really nice moment. And it's a great way to end the episode. It is very good. And I think it sort of really sets up where they're going. Oh, and just to finish something that I mentioned last episode, this is the scene, and I think a little bit when they're in Matthew's room, where the romantic version of the song that played where they first met, that is kind of creepy in the library, this is where the romantic version is playing. Oh, okay. And that's where the episode ends. That is where the episode ends. So many cuts, so much information. We do know a lot more about the world now than we did at the end of the first episode. We do, which I guess if you haven't read the books is good. Yes. And I imagine there are a lot of show watchers who have not read the book. Yeah. So, okay. What were your favorite parts of this episode? I know up top you said this is your least favorite episode, but I'm sure you have to have some favorite parts. I do, and unsurprisingly, they were all in those last couple minutes. But I of course. do love the historical flirting. We already talked about it a bunch, so I try not to belabor the point here. But it's just so good how she literally is like, you knew Darwin? And he's like, yep. And suddenly, you, you can just see it in her face. She's just like, this isn't a vampire. This is a library in person form. <laughs> Oh my god, I love that library in person form. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I think I called it glee, that she has glee at discovering all of these things about Matthew. And then that, that whole scene of her trying to figure out how old he is was just adorable. Yeah, that's good. So I am right there with you with that scene. And how he, he just doesn't tell her and keeps her guessing. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Were you at the fall of Carthage? Yeah. Which fall of Carthage? You know, it's just, it's funny. It's great. It's flirting. It's exactly, absolutely historical flirting. Yeah, it's so good. I think you've coined a new term. <laughs> but, like, only it can only be done between these two. Yes. Um, and then I also did enjoy the, the wrist kiss at the end. We talked about it a lot already, so I will simply add that a friend of mine on Tumblr reblogged a gif of this scene with the commentary that this was their first sex scene. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's there's just so much happening between the two of them there that Yeah. I and it's a very well filmed scene. I like it a lot. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about the show is how much they do without words. Yeah. You know, in, in the hands of a lesser director, they would have verbally given us all of the exposition that they gave us in this episode and there was a lot of exposition there was a lot of verbal exposition in this episode but there was also just a lot of visual stuff and i really appreciate being told a story without words and i think they're doing a pretty good job of that i'm just double checking but um so this is our yeah this is our last episode directed by a man oh okay so going forward, it's it, the next three are done by a woman, and the three after that are done by a, a, a different woman. Okay. I'll, I I want to pay attention and see if this kind of trend of visual exposition continues. Although hopefully we'll get more story and less exposition yeah. moving forward. I do think episode three is one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. It's it's definitely a standout episode Yeah, to me. I think this one, uh, and the I really enjoy the last episode. Interesting. I think for me, I definitely absolutely agree with you about the flirting. Mm -hmm. In Matthew's bookshelves, I've mentioned them a couple of times. Like, I just, it's wonderful. They're very good. 
it's a beautiful just wall of books and and not just any books they're beautiful old leather books you know and like the part of me that you know went to theater school and had prop class like i know it's all fake but it doesn't matter i want to run my fingers along it yes <sighs> smell them mm. and then i think there was a, a matthew had a line um, when he and diana were walking in the scene before the wrist kiss where he is talking to her about how the creatures are dying out and he says one day there'll be just one species humans and of course they won't notice the difference because they've never noticed us but gradually eventually they'll come to see that all the magic has seeped out of the world and that's just such a well-written line you know whenever you consider magic seeping out of the world and how different the world would be even though even though humans don't know that creatures exist, it's obvious that creatures would notice, I mean, that, that humans would notice that something was different if creatures suddenly didn't exist. And so just the idea of that put into such an elegant sentence, I think, just resonated with me. Yeah, that, that was very good. And just, I don't know, Matthew Good's voice yes. is just wonderful. And so he can take an elegant sentence and make it sound 50 times more elegant. Absolutely. Like, I could just listen to him talk for a while and I'd be okay with that. Okay, so if you have not read the book or watched all of the episodes, please proceed at your own risk. Moving forward, we are going to talk about things that may not yet have appeared in the show or don't at all. So if you don't want to be spoiled, please turn around now. Okay, we should be alone now. I don't know why this annoys me so much, but it really, 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 really bothers me that the Hamish in the show is different from the Hamish in the book in that in the show, Hamish already knows about Eleanor and Cecilia, mm -hmm. that these are human women that Matthew had a relationship with who he accidentally killed. Because in the book, when Hamish finds out about this, he, he kind of pulls the information out of Matthew when Matthew's trying to explain to him why he's so reluctant to go after Diana. Yeah. And Hamish pulls the story out of him He's so kind and compassionate about it. You know, I think he actually uses the word, oh, Matt, why didn't you tell me? Yeah. You know, and he comforts him and lets him know that he's not a monster. He's not a murderer. It was an accident. And in the show, Hamish already knows this and he throws them back in his face as reasons why he shouldn't go after Diana. Because obviously you've killed these two women in the past. You might kill Diana. And that, like, 180 switch of character really, really bothered me. Did you notice it? Did it... I didn't notice did it, it affect you the at same way? first, but um, I also just reread that scene. So it, I noticed it when I was rereading that scene. Okay. Like, that is very different. Yeah. Well, it kind of changes Hamish's character a little bit, though. Because the Hamish in the book would never have done that to Matthew. Yeah. And it also, like, it doesn't... We don't have the time for Matthew to explain how it happened with those women right so we don't know what he did and that it was largely accidental well i almost don't think it was needed in the show because the reason we had it in the book was because matthew was so torn up over wanting diana and also not wanting to hurt her yeah we don't get that in the show we just get he needs to get away from this witch but you don't get this sense that he's afraid of hurting her it feels more like it's a witch vampire thing. 
And, and so given how they've set it up, and we've already seen Matthew have a little bit of prejudice against witches too, just not Diana. And, and so I don't know why they felt like they even needed to give us this information, especially since it doesn't come back up in the season. It does. Does it? Yeah, he mentions it in episode seven. Well, shows how much I paid. <laughs> to be fair, it's like right after the big sex scene, so I can see where maybe you're thinking about something else. Oh, that's probably where I was texting you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um Yeah. But like just barely. He just mentions that he's hurt two women before. Yeah. But but we never get the sense that because this happened in the past, he's holding back from pursuing Diana because of that. Yeah. You know, I feel like he's holding back because she's a witch and he's a vampire, not because she's warm-blooded and he might hurt her. And so it just feels very strange. Going forward, I agree. But in this scene, like, he ran away to Scotland in the show to get away from her because he was craving her and he thought he was going to hurt her. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But I get, But in the book, that is very different because everything plays out so differently in the book. A lot of what happens in episode three in the book happens before Scotland. Right. And really, Matthew goes up to Scotland to clear his head and to think about things with Diana not there. Right. So absolutely. It is very different. And I like, and again, for the same reasons, I like it better because it's like he's going to talk to Hamish, you know, because he needs to talk to her friend to clear up what he's going through and what his decision is. And it is through like the drawing out of everything and Hamish's patience that you see, you know, Hamish help Matthew come to the conclusion that he does love Diane and that's what he's going to do. Right. And in the show, Hamish is trying to stop him. Yeah. I think that might be the thing that I don't like is that in the book, Hamish is pushing him to accept these emotions. And we don't see that at all in the show. And I think that's such a large part of Hamish's character that I like, that he is so kind and gentle and full of emotion. We get a bit of it later. But mm -hmm. I will say, then it seems like a complete 180 for Hamish, for this Hamish. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I also really, really like how they are doing foreshadowing. Me in, too. In the show. I mean, they are hardcore setting up. I mean, and this is something that we're not even going to get to until season two, but when we find out that Diana's a weaver, mm -hmm. whatever that is, you know, they're clearly setting that up and i know we talked about this a little bit last episode but it was even more so this episode because of the spider webs you know there's more spider imagery we actually see spider webs all over her and things like that um they're setting up that she's been spellbound with what satu said to her mm -hmm. about somebody did something to you you know we're they're setting up peter really trying to come for for diana and not just taking no for an answer which we didn't really expect him to anyway yeah. But they're doing a really good job of foreshadowing what's going to come up later in ways that the book didn't do quite as well. Yes, agreed. But again, I think they're only foreshadow. They're sticking to foreshadowing. No, that's untrue. They do foreshadow a lot of books slash season two. They just they cut out other foreshadowing or they change it into foreshadowing for this season, which I don't know. It just strikes me as a little bit odd that they add foreshadowing but take out foreshadowing blah 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 yeah blah. Well, it's different doing a tv show than straight book true 
you know, especially when you have to change up the point of view and yeah, tell stories that weren't actually seen in the book. Like we just got consequences. Yeah, I in the book. I do love that we're seeing Satu and Juliet and Gerbert and all these like antagonists that in the book just sort of popped out of nowhere. And yeah. then Matthew explained who they were. Right. Like we get to meet them up front. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, two things that they've cut out of the show are Diana's whole problem with adrenaline. They like Matthew mentions that he can smell her adrenaline in this. In the book, mm-hmm. though, she had like panic attacks and was just all had this huge like fight or flight response to basically everything, and it was a big problem. And that was sort of tied into her, her ma- her not using her magic that mm-hmm. it was like building up inside of her. Which right, that's why she was a rower. Yeah, in the book, why she was always constantly moving. Right, and I thought that was interesting. I mean, it's not needed at all, so I can see why they just cut that out. Mm-hmm. I just liked it, I guess, in the book. That her not using her magic had this physical effect on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And then when she's researching Matthew in the book, she finds that sometimes he he has, like, strange outbursts. He, like, she learns about him flipping his switch on a student at one point. I think a student, somebody asked him a question that he didn't like, and he just jumped down her throat. And I think that's kind of setting something up to do with Matthew, to yeah. do with his, his blood rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been no foreshadowing about his blood rage at all. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious how they're going to address that in season two. Yeah. I honestly don't even remember where we first learn about it. Is it the second book? No, she, he tells her about it up front. I, I think we don't find out about it until they go to Septor. Okay. But he does tell her about it. We I don't think we learn the extent of it until later on. Yeah. But we definitely find out about it. And there's no hint of it right now, which I think is weird. I can see, like, we did just spend some time complaining about how much, how much exposition there is. So possibly they wanted less exposition. And, you know, if they didn't get further seasons, that was something they could cut. But... Mm, yeah I, it, it'll be interesting to see now how they how they bring it up because it is important to matthew as a character and to the world right all right well we have been talking about this episode for a while yes we have and there's still plenty to talk about when we get to episode three yes so we'd love to know what you think of matthew and diana so far use hashtag desire made real to join our conversation on twitter I'm Caitlin, and you can find my other show at acommandofherown.com, or I'm on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. And I am Andy Kay, and you can find this show and all of the other Eloquent Gushing shows at eloquentgushing.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at eloquentgushing, or you can give me a shout out over on Twitter at Mandy Kay. Join us next week as we talk about episode three, where we visit Matthew's house. Until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there is a new beginning.